This is Cinema Degeneration. Okay, let's run. This is a snakeskin jacket. And for me, it's a symbol of my individuality and my belief in personal freedom. I just got 50 cars for you in one night. All right, I'm a little tired, a little wired, and I think I deserve a little appreciation. That's one way of looking at it. The other is you get to keep 75% and not go to prison for the rest of your life. <laughs> hey, have you ever been dragged to the sidewalk and beaten until you pissed blood? I never just rode before gunfire. Yeah, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, do you have Y, Z, That's all you have to do! to be murdered. She had no name. I need information. I thought you might be able to help. Until he uncovered the truth. The film is real. Now. I'm trying to understand. How far will he go? You dance with the devil. The devil don't change. The devil changes you. In the name of justice. There's no one left to finish this movie. Academy Award winner Nicolas Cage. No! Eight millimeter. Rated R. Opens everywhere February 26th. Alrighty, folks, welcome once again to Cinema Degeneration, and this is Brilliantly Insane, The Age of Cage, where we celebrate anything and everything relating to Nicolas Cage's films. And this week we are bringing you a, quite an intense little uh, little flick. It's, a, it's not little, it's an epic flick with a not-so-epic sequel. We are doing 8mm from 1999, a movie that delves darkly into the uh, bowers of... Uh, pornography and snuff films so it's a dark subject matter the second movie i don't even know if we should really mention it but we'll get into it when we get into it (laughs) well that being said i want to introduce my co-host this evening my without warning regular co-host Corey dawson how we doing doing good man ready to go into the underbelly the belly of the beasts and Underbelly is right with this movie. This movie doesn't give you much time. You know, it gives you a good 15 minutes at the beginning of somewhat normalcy, and then it's just like we're getting deeper and deeper and deeper into these catacombs of filth and garbage, <laughs> and, and it's you know nobody's going to come out of it clean. That is correct. There is corruption of all kinds with everyone. 
Now, that being said, you this is the first time for you on the show. You've been on Howling at the Full Moon. You've been on a couple of the appreciation months. You are the regular host of uh, Without Warning. So, But this is your first time on, on the Nick Cage show, Brilliantly Insane. So we have a couple preliminary questions we like to ask you. So if, uh, if you're ready for that, we'll get started. And then we'll do a review of 8mm. All, right, All right. Now, the first question I got is, do you remember... What was the first Nicolas Cage movie you ever saw? Uh, I kind of have to do a little bit of mental math here, but I'm, I think that it was Moonstruck. I think that Moonstruck was the first thing I saw him in because it was so, uh, not to, to throw a pun in here, but it, it was really striking to me that this guy, he was sort of like this breezy, troubled guy with a wooden hand, and he was obsessed with opera, like, I found it to be a very in, a very intriguing, compelling character. And then the second one would have had to have been Raising Arizona. So between those two movies, you can see the range of this guy. And it oh, was yeah. astounding yeah. to me. Yeah, and Moonstruck, he kind of shows the first inkling of what we would become known as uh, Rage Cage or Cage Rage later on. Yeah, full cage. Bit. Full cage. All right, okay, cool, Moonstruck. We haven't gotten that answer quite yet, so that's a good one. Yeah, and... dude, it's the truth. I, and, and actually, I haven't revisited it in a while, but I remember, I think that I was drawn to Moonstruck particularly because we had had a, a supermoon around the time that I saw it because mom had HBO, and it was on there. And they had a, and I think a supermoon was like, it, it factored big in that. And we had had one, so... For whatever reason, that sort of drew me to it because as a kid, I mean, a kid watching Moonstruck seems kind of weird, like it wouldn't really be the flavor or whatever. But I think it was him because he sort of um, I think in a strange way, he he sort of gave me a phantom of the opera feeling because he was yeah, sort of like that. he was wronged and he was disfigured, sort of. So there was kind of a weird that's a, I guess that's a very weird way of looking at it. But that's the only thing I can come up with why I was even interested to watch it. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a weird kind of segue, so to speak. But yeah, I can kind of see where you're coming from. Well, anyway, we'll move on to the next question. Now, this is probably going to be an easy one. I, I got a feeling I know which one this is, so we'll see if I'm right. You have an ultimate favorite Nicolas Cage film. Uh, well, oh, I have to say... Um, because as soon as you started mentioning, like, my first one, like, all of these Nicolas Cage movies started filtering in. So why don't you tell me what you thought it was first? For some reason, I, I, I see you as a Con Air kind of guy. <laughs> okay, don't get me wrong. I love me some Con Air. I love Con Air. In fact, there was a time in my life well, where I, I was dating a girl, and for some reason, the only, one of the only action movies she ever wanted to watch was Con Air, and we probably watched it like every couple of weeks. And we 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 ran the hell out of that DVD. If you can run the doors or the wheels off of a DVD, we did. But I, <laughs> you wore I it think, thin, right? Yeah, in my heart of hearts, I think. Wow, that's a really difficult question because you would think that with Nicolas Cage and kind of like his shamanic—I can't remember how—I saw somebody called it something. It was like shamanic method acting or something and or shamanic philosophy i don't know um you almost have to say okay this is my favorite of his such and such phase and this is my favorite of his such and such phase 
I'm tempted to say um, no. I want to leave that one out. I want to leave that one out. Um, it's a Sophie's I choice, think, isn't it? It really is. It really is because I really do think that there are sort of levels, uh, levels of him and levels of where he's been and what he's been doing that you can kind of say, okay, well, there's the peninsula-headed uh, Nicholas Cage, which is like, you know, the early stuff. I think Con- I think uh, not Conair, but Face Off was kind of like his last peninsula-haired thing. And that was even going into the Caesar at that point. And then you have kind of <laughs> like the the dour hangdog Nicolas Cage, which would have been like mom and dad. And then you have sort of, oh, my God, this is a tough one. Yeah, I think so- I might have to, I think I might have to say, oh, wait, no, no, I have it. Pig, pig. Ooh, pig. that's a good choice. I almost forgot. I almost forgot. Pig, yeah. I think that one, um, whereas, you know, this, this one shows a lot of range from him, but I think that Pig, I think Pig should have gotten an Oscar, but that's just me. He should have at least got a nomination, it was my opinion on it. But Yeah, you know. I mean, a nomination would have been good for that because, I mean, I, I honestly think nothing is going to stop his momentum at this point. I think that he's really gotten back into the, uh, the, I don't know if a zeitgeist is a real word for it because he's been around for so long, but I really think that he's coming back hardcore. He's got that island paid off. He's got a dinosaur skull paid off. This It's kind of, you know, if you could say that there's a good thing about the 21st century or at least, you know, uh, the 2020s, you have to say uh, Brendan Fraser is off the alimony and he's back working again. At least that's what I heard. Oh, and he's, Nicolas Cage. Uh, he's doing a bunch of new shit. Uh, Brendan Fraser is. I just was reading where he's going to be the the lead villain in the new Batgirl movie. Yeah, that's going to be crazy, dude. I've seen some photographs nice. of him as Firefly, so that's going to be awesome. And of course, everybody on set said he was like the biggest sweetheart ever, so that doesn't hurt matters any. In the in the time of you know, if you need a sweetheart, Will Smith is out of the running. So now <laughs> someone's going to have to fall in the line. But. Uh, at least we yeah, always. I think at least say, we got Brendan Fraser. That's right. Uh, I think I'm going to say Pig on this one. Good choice. Good choice. Yeah, I love Pig. Thought Pig was an excellent film, but yeah, definitely good choice. I was actually overcome. I was overcome by that movie. So I, I the ending the hell out of it. without ruining it here for anybody because we haven't reviewed it yet. Until we review it, I don't want to ruin it. But the ending literally took the breath from my lungs. You know, it just oh, like that felt like it stole the breath right out of me. Like. <gasps> Like, yeah, oh. but was yeah. that an A24? I can't remember. You know, I can't remember either, but I think so. I think it might have been. I'm, I'm, I'm just those motherfuckers are firing on some cylinders now. I mean, if, if it's not, it's there still, are very it's, few, uh, great film. there are very few movies of theirs that I won't watch side on. You know, I haven't seen X yet. It seems like that moved into the streaming pretty fast. Did you see where they already have a prequel shot at that? That they shot a prequel under quarantine. <laughs> That there, there's no. a preview, there's a preview at the end of the movie, basically, uh, from what I understand, for a prequel about a couple of the characters in the movie that they shot like while they were shooting that movie. They were just like, "Hey, we're held up in this hotel. We can't do anything, you know, besides shoot and sit in this hotel." So the hey, director well, man. came up might with well. a crazy this way to do it, though. But all right, yeah. anyway, on to the next question. This is a good one. Do you have a dream project that you would like to see? 
Nicolas Cage do, whether it be just any original project or a sequel or what have you? Uh, you know, it's it's kind of weird, the previous conversation about that. Uh, is it okay if I say two? Yeah, yeah, you can do that. Okay. The number one for me is Nicolas Cage doing a full-on A24. Is it Nick Eggers, Dave Eggers? I always get those guys mixed up. I thought it was Dave. I might be wrong. I, one is a is an author. I think it's I think it's Dave Eggers. I can't remember now. But one of the Eggers boys uh, doing a full on period piece series is a heart attack. Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Nicholas Cage, Ichabod Crane, flat out. Ooh, you know, in the world where we've already had Johnny Depp and Jeff Goldblum play Ichabod Crane, I think uh, Nicholas Cage needs his turn. Yeah, and I would love to see him with like you know the high collar and like the real super severe pulled back hair into like the little thing. I'd want to see it all. All right. Well, that's your yeah. first one. And what, what is uh, the second title? The second one is a little bit more fanciful. I would like to have uh, Benjamin Franklin and Gates team up with uh, Rick O'Connell, an aged Rick O'Connell who survived his mummy exploits and have them go on an exploit together. Oh, so a national treasure, uh, uh, mummy crossbreed, uh, cross I guess. Yeah. I mean, if I had my druthers, I mean, this isn't my Nicolas Cage, but I've always, I think we talked about this once. I've always had a dream of that the mummy returns didn't exist. And instead they moved on to another monster, but with Evie, Rick and the, and Jonathan, I made yeah. a poster for one actually. <laughs> and, and it was going to be them going it all had to do with like this meeting in Europe and Dr. Frankenstein was there and like Dracula was in the wings, but he wasn't a villain yet. He was just sort of like a count. Well, and we're getting as close it, as we can. We are getting Nicolas Cage playing Dracula in a Renfield movie. So, Oh my God, it is, gonna, it, it is a great, who would have ever thought that to say that it was going to be a great year. Like, I mean, this, this reemergence, because I mean, I guess he never left. But for some reason, Nicolas Cage's straight-to-video stuff isn't like Bruce Willis's straight-to-video stuff. It isn't like John Cusack's straight-to-video stuff. For or some Steven reason, Seagal's straight-to-video stuff. Yeah, for some reason, it has much more of a life because he never phones it in. Like he's always there doing it. So I think that's yeah, why he I've might yet to see anything of- where I felt like he was phoning it in. You know, maybe it's out there and I haven't seen it, but I feel like I like he's always been performance guaranteed. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Last final question. What do you think is the most underrated Nicolas Cage film? Vampire's Kiss. Vampire's Kiss. Nice. I mean, I, I would say that it's really, it, I think it's risen to prominence a little more now. And I think that it's all hinging on that uh, Henry, Harry Hanrahan, uh, Nicolas Cage losing his shit video. <laughs> yeah. I think that that's brought. I think everybody has been like, wait, what's this one where he's walking around with a stake and what, what's going on here? And I think they've done the homework and they found out that Vampire's Kiss existed. I actually had the HBO Films VHS of that. Uh, I got the old uh, HBO home video Laserdisc release, and I watched that about three or four weeks ago. And just to actually have something on in the background while I was writing. And I ended up turning it off at the point where he eats the cockroach. 
not specifically for <laughs> that for that reason just because i was done in my office and that was it i was done at about the 45 minute mark and i'm like okay seems appropriate he's eating a cockroach i should stop it right here i would say that of all the quotable things that that he's ever done that's the one that i quote the most is vampire's kiss there's not a week that goes by that I don't look at somebody and go, it's not going to go away. It never just goes away. That goddamn contract is somewhere in that goddamn fucking file. I say that all the time. I've done the ABC speech to somebody before. <laughs> just out of the blue, and they didn't know what the hell I was doing. It wasn't like I let in with it, but nope. By the time they were done, they just looked at me, and I, I was done. And they were just like, um, oh. Okay. What Actually, was that? the one that I do, the one that I do about once a month is, was like, you're, you, I was, and I'll be damned if I wasn't really turned on by the girl, or is like, by the girl, yes, by the girl. Well, yeah, of course, absolutely, but I mean, come on now, I was in Mortal Kombat with a fucking bat. Give me a break. <laughs> I do that all the time. <laughs> Give me a fucking break. Yeah, that's. <laughs> That, that is a major league, uh, especially since uh, his his girlfriend in that movie was in Silence of the Lambs, flat out. And she was in Candyman, too. No, that's right. She was in Candyman, wasn't she? The first yeah, one, right? Yeah. It wasn't the second yeah, one, was absolutely. it? It was the first one. Nope. First one. So she had a pretty storied career. I don't know whatever happened to her, but I loved her and stuff. So Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's a, it's a hard business. People come and go, and it's you blink, and they're gone. Like, they come in and make six, seven films. Like, that's it. Peace. I'm out. <laughs> you know, now that I think about it, I can't remember who Denzel Washington's wife was in Philadelphia. Because you would have thought that Jonathan Demme, if you would have gotten onto one of his gigs, then you might have gotten some jobs elsewhere, too. It's true. It's true. Actually, I've only seen Philadelphia once when I saw him when I came out in theaters. I've never I, seen I, it I since. Honestly, I haven't visited that. I watched it this year, and uh, it was a mistake. Like it destroyed me this year. That was ball yeah. my eyes out. That's a that's a that's a powerful film, for sure. It's a movie like Pig. It kind of brings out some uh, some deep dark emotions out of you. It takes your mind to to some dark places because either movie or so well uh, defined by your their kind of bleak subject matter, and there's something that could. In each movie, albeit both being very different, they could both as equally happen in reality. It's yeah. like yeah, that, and that's what uh, I think. That's part of what makes eight millimeter like work on such a visceral level. Is this like uh, yeah, this could yeah. totally happen. What a segue! Okay. Cinema yeah. degeneration right here, bitches. Fuck yeah. Yeah, and if you haven't guessed, folks, that's when we're changing forms of the show. We are now talking eight millimeter, motherfuckers. Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, that's how we do things around here. <laughs> well, I have to say, I, I think something occurred to me earlier today, and that was, okay, sorry, go ahead. You should probably go ahead because this is sort of like a an overarching thing. Well, I was just going to give the quick IMDb synopsis, okay. which is really super short, and then we can start going into the movie. And we don't have to do this in a in a linear fashion. We can kind of hit some bullet points. Some of our favorite scenes, things that we want to talk about, some underlying themes, you know, favorite characters maybe. But uh, yeah, we'll deep dive. Uh, deep dive. <laughs> deep. Duh. He's nuts. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> I can't talk. I can't talk. It's, 
It's not because it's 420 either, I'm swear. Okay. I'm not saying <laughs> shit. <laughs> All right. But we will take a deep dive. There, hey, I said it, folks. You got we're, it. We're, we're leaving all this shit in. Fuck it. <laughs> Fuck it. We're rolling it live. Fuck it. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. I'm, I'm almost ashamed of myself for using that. <laughs> Don't be. There is no shame. No shame is cinema degeneration. Okay, anyway, anyway, folks. We digress here. 8 millimeter, 1999. IMDb synopsis is as follows. A private investigator is hired to discover if a snuff film is authentic or not. And that is the shortest, bleakest, and uh, most bare bones, like, IMDb synopsis. It tells you everything you need to know about this movie going into it, but it is, uh, I'm sure you would not not disagree that this movie is a hell of a lot deeper than just finding out if a snuff film is is real or not. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. There is, there's what... I guess what secrets are allowed to be, what secrets are sort of okay, what secrets are like dark and damaging, which ones will like destroy your life, what you see, what you believe, what you are, what you thought you were. Like it goes to a lot of that shit. And I think that if people really look at Joel Schumacher, uh, Joel Schumacher's catalog, I think if they were to really look at it, they would stop saying they would stop bringing up the Batman films because I was paying attention to this and Batman forever happened. And then a time to kill happened Mm -hmm. totally, totally different. And then Batman and Robin happened and then eight millimeter happened. So I think that people who discount him outright, just because of that other stuff, I think that when you listen to him saying, Hey, you know, I was trying, they wanted a comic book. They wanted toys. I gave them a comic book and I gave them toys. And then on the other side of the coin, not to talk about like Tommy Lee Jones, nothing like that. No, that kind of punning here. But um, (laughs) anyone like if if there's somebody with a leather fetish, you got them. If if you got the S&M crowd, you got that. If if there's like um, sort of like the camp, uh, the camp LGBTQ thing, you got that vein running through it. There's neon stuff. It's all crazy. There's stuff that kids can enjoy, but there are deeper things that that adults might laugh at. And there there are a lot of videos online now saying that, you know, Batman Forever. I've never seen anyone cast Batman and Robin in a good light, but it seems like Batman Forever is getting reconsidered since uh, Schumacher's death. And if you look at his, uh, I mean, you, you cannot look at the guy who made Flatliners, The Lost Boys, time to kill an eight millimeter falling you down cannot, well yeah falling down too yeah sure so like you can't look at this guy and go okay he made some campy batman films so that's all this guy is good for that's that's bullshit because he was doing this stuff in between the in between and after and before those movies it was basically him just shifting gears and then he shifted into a different gear and did some awesome wonderful stuff so i mean the man did dc's cab for crying out loud you know what? I haven't seen that in years. Uh, I haven't either. It's, I probably saw it once about five years ago, last time. Unbelievable. Yeah. DC Cab was meant for for Cohen. I mean, I don't oh, know yeah. how Joel Schum- I don't know how Joel Schumacher got a hold of it. Maybe Cohen was like a, a producer or something. <laughs> Cohen was just like, nah, I'll let Schumacher handle this one. Yeah. So Tom Wells, Nicolas Cage. I love how they start I out had- with it. Like it's just him. 
probably smoking that or prominently smoking that cigarette everywhere he goes and then completely lying to his wife later on that he's smoking. Oh, my God. I think that after everything, that was the most that was science fiction. As far as I'm concerned, being a non-smoker myself and never having smoked at length, I've only smoked. I think that I've smoked like 20 cigarettes in my life and 16 of them were on a movie set for a for a part. And I told the guy. I told him time and time again, I was like, this is never, ever going to look legit because there are 10,000 little mannerisms that smokers have that I haven't got. No one's ever going to believe it. They've always gotten cut. Any parts that I'm smoking in, they've always gotten cut. And I've warned the director, but there's no way on earth that you could fake the funk on not smoking when you've been smoking to a oh, when he, when he tries to tell her, he's like, I was in the bar and there was people smoking at the bar. And she's looking at him like, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. I mean, she kissed a fucking guy. You can't get that <laughs> off of you. Like, oh, yeah, Fuck, I was licking, I was, I was just licking an ashtray. It was, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I kissed a hooker for work, okay? Okay. Leave me alone. <laughs> that's where the glitter's uh, from. It's from the hookers. Yeah, it, it wasn't Max California. That, that's, that's time travel. Uh, but I... Uh, I just love how it opens, was, though, with him doing that senator's dirty work, and he just kind of does that job, and it's like, yep, nice nice doing business with you, senator, and, you know, I'll keep you guys in business. And, yeah, he sort of did give her a little bit of the Irish goodbye on that one, where she's like, I can't, is that idiot? How can you do that in public? He's like, so my invoice is in there. Can I go now? I was like, okay, shit, Jesus Christ. You think that he would have given her a little bit more uh, leeway, but. Yeah, he at least given her the time me, of day. One, one thing occurred to me this time that I didn't think about before, and I always thought, how on earth could Nicolas Cage navigate all these different echelons that he's navigating in this movie? And I think that the reason why he can do it is he is so polite to the elite, and he, but he doesn't patronize. He doesn't kiss their ass. I couldn't believe how much information he gave Mrs. Christian. He was totally straight up with that woman. I could not believe it because Mrs. Christian was the wife of the widow of Mr. Christian. And I don't think you ever learned his first name. I don't to be honest, I was I, I wasn't paying attention. The story got so deep. By the time it got to the end, you didn't need to know what Mr. Christian's name was anymore. It, in, in a sad manner of speaking, it wasn't about, uh, you know, it wasn't about him anymore. It wasn't even about. You no, know, with. with with some of the little, re- with some of the kind of like the philosophical uh, flights of fancy that I was doing earlier about my little theory about the Mr. Christian, 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 Mr. Christian, I wouldn't be surprised if his name was Noah, to be honest. <laughs> first name. But I had to really kind of like listen hard to figure out what his occupation was. And finally, I figured out it was steel. It must be steel magnate. But they yeah. only say it for a split second. I guess that the house and the way everybody acts and sort of like the, ton- the you know, the, the bourbon tumblers and the fireplace. I guess that once you establish through sort of like this visual semaphore that he's wealthy, you really don't have to say anything else about it, especially if he's dead. And the whole thing is about snuff films. But I had to really listen hard because I, I was trying to figure out what the fuck he did for a living. And then finally, they mentioned one sentence, and they don't even really say that he does that. Tom just looks at a something on the wall, and he says, you know, such and such steel mill. 
I worked there as a kid or my brother worked there as a kid. And that was the only thing they said about it. And to be honest, yeah. that might even be reaching. I'm just guessing that that's what he did. I just figured just he was probably old money. One of those people that had had still, you know, had, was heavily involved in the, the industrial sector, probably owned a lot of property, a lot of real estate. That's why I kind of figured he was probably had his fingers in everything. I honestly think this movie is all about secrets because I mean it's a bunch of, a bunch of things, but one of them is a, is secrets because he is completely honest with Mrs. Christian. But he's, he's the only person honest. he's honest with her to a point. He tells her what she needs to know when she needs to know it. So you what know, didn't he tell her? Well, I mean, like he only filtered information as he saw fit, you know, I, I thought, you know, I don't think he kept anything from her. It was just like, I don't think he kept anything. Uh, Tom Wells didn't keep anything from, uh, oh, the mother or what was her name? Janet, you know, Janet. like, yeah, he told her, you know, what she needed to know when she needed to know it. It's just like when the end comes, you know, and he he calls her up to ask for We'll get to it in more detail. But when he calls her to ask her for permission. You know, and oh my ooh. god, what a harrowing scene that was! Harrowing yeah. as fuck. We'll get to it. Yeah, we'll who get to it. This something. Sorry, I was gonna uh, say, who would have thought uh, something so simple? Because I don't think I've ever heard that in a movie before or since. Have you? No, I don't think I've ever heard anything like that before. And I'm sure you know, in in twenty some odd year, thirty some odd years since the movies, uh, well, it's been out for what twenty three years, so. It's probably been done, you know, again, but I've never seen it. And especially not done to that type of effectiveness. But something kind of, uh, when he does, like, so, I mean, we didn't really establish that, but Mrs. Christian, Mr. Christian dies, and Mrs. Christian, along with her attorney, Longdale. Yeah, and, uh, I, and I have one, one note here. Uh, fuck Longdale. Longdale's an asshole. Yeah, fuck Longdale. And, but as uh, soon as I saw the actor I, playing him, Anthony Held, I'm like, oh, that's the guy from, like, that's the asshole from, uh, uh, oh, what the hell is it? Uh, Silence, Silence of the Lambs. Lambs. Yeah, Silence of the Lambs. That's what I was thinking. I had a brain fart. And I was thinking, I'm like, oh, don't trust that motherfucker. And of course I was right. But anyway, anyway. It seems like, because uh, he was he was that, he was this. And then it seems like I remember him being like some sort of interrogator that just gets kind of bitch slapped by another interrogator out of the room because he wasn't getting the job done. But I can't remember what it was. But he's a he's always a slimy asshole. It's kind of like um, the guy who played Peck in Ghostbusters. That guy just played an asshole for years. Yeah, but when it was Ghostbusters or Die Hard, that guy got synonymous by playing a dickhead. And uh, Buried Alive also. Can't forget buried that. Alive. Um, but but yeah, he played when, a nice guy in Biodome. Weird. Yeah, I mean, kind of. He was still the bad guy. He was trying to kill everybody at the end. Oh, Jesus. Fucking spoiler alert, man. Come on. <laughs> but well, all I can say is... You, wait, <laughs> you're telling me you haven't <laughs> seen Biodome? No, no, I have, I have. Uh, I mean, like, but when like you see... son of a bitch. <laughs> and when you see Stephen Baldwin... <laughs> when you see Stephen Baldwin trimming... Was it... I think, I think Stephen Baldwin was, was trimming... Uh, Pauly Shore's toenails with his own teeth, I think, if I remember correctly. Oh, uh, yeah. I think that's what sent him to the Christian right. Yeah, I, I definitely that might have been part of it. Some, something on Polly's foot sent him over the edge. 
or yeah, either that or Benicio del Toro just fucking pistol whipped him at some point during the usual suspects. And he never survived. <laughs> he took that cigarette to the face and he was just like, that's it. That's it. I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> Maybe it's because he was stuck in the devil's threesome in that movie with, uh, Josh, whatever, Josh Charles and, uh, and, uh, that chick from, from Wayne's world. Oh, oh, I, I know what you're talking about. She was big for a minute. She played that completely silly as hell villain in uh, Men in Black 2. I digress. Anyway, what I was going to say about Tom <laughs> Wells is... Yeah, before we went um, off on I, Stephen Baldwin here. <laughs> I think the reason why... Because for a long time, I was like, how in the hell can he walk around in all these seedy uh, places and get into this stuff? Why don't they just... Because, I mean, I guess they're, at one point, they kind of started sniffing him as a cop. But he got around a lot of places before anyone kind of sniffed that out. And I think it's because he looked so damn normal that it might be that like level of like serial killer normal that you have. Yeah, almost you're too normal. Like the, yeah, you walk in like he, the Mississippi he, Mangler. Like he looked pedestrian, is the way I describe it in this oh, movie. Yeah. Until you get towards the end, and then everything kind of you know all hell fucking breaks loose. But like he just looked very pedestrian, very unassuming kind of guy. I think That's, another thing that Joel Schumacher was underrated for in this, especially, was I think if I remember correctly, Joel Schumacher worked for Halston when Halston was real super big as a fashion designer. I think that throughout this movie, if you watch from the beginning to the end, Nicolas Cage's wardrobe completely changes as he becomes like more and more immersed in the corruption. Oh yeah, he and by the end he's wearing like sleeveless, sleeveless black shirts and like leather jackets and stuff. He's almost like it's like um, Max California. Joaquin Phoenix's character tells him, "You know, the devil will get you. It doesn't let go." Yeah, and I mean, especially when you know that Max California absolutely is not that guy's name, but they no. never really go into who that guy used to be. Uh, oh my God, Max California. Poor Max California. He's probably one of my favorite characters that I've watched in a movie in the last little while. Uh, we bear, we hardly knew ye, dude. Yeah, yeah. The little Joaquin Phoenix, you know, it was one of his first roles for crying out loud. And he was bringing It's weird as hell to think that he was uh, in Space Camp. <laughs> but then he was Leaf, I think. I think he's changed his name like three times. He's changed it a couple of times, hasn't he? I think that Joaquin was the original one, but I think that he went as something else kind of to to appeal to the broader audience. And then he was Leaf when he was a little kid. And then when he hit a certain point, I think it was right before, like, it was like Clay Pigeons, like, to die for. I think it was right before that when he changes to Joaquin. See, the first thing I remember seeing him in was U-Turn, Oliver Stone movie. You know, uh, it's really crazy. I've never seen U-Turn, but the other day... I saw a clip with him in the diner with uh, with Sean Penn, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Why on earth wouldn't you cast this guy as Johnny Cash?" Like it was, he was so over the top in that one, it was crazy. But, but yeah, I, Max I California, that. like you said, when we get introduced to him and he's re- reading uh, old Truman Capote. <laughs> yeah, man, I I think that he, I think that it was weird because. Um, in a couple of ways, when, on this rewatch, it sort of reminded me a little bit of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is another favorite of mine. 
where you kind of have like the seasoned detective and little half-ass detective where he's sort of like looking up to him and trying to learn from him. And in that one, it's completely pathetic. Like the Robert Downey character in comparison with Val Kilmer is kind of pathetic. Whereas in this, it's almost, I mean, I got real super huge twinges, strangely, like ironically enough, this was more of a Batman and Robin film than the Batman and Robin film, as far as I'm concerned. You got the detective, and then you have sort of like the fledgling guy who's making his way, who's helping him, like his monkey wrench, getting him into places. I found this to be more of a Tom Wells' Batman, Max California's Robin, flat out. And I love this is character. Bruce Wayne's uh, secret life that he's got going on outside of Gotham. Yeah, man. I, I just I felt that this was a detective story where the guy who was with him wasn't a tag along that was getting in the way. He was actually getting him into places. So it was a very unique character that they rarely ever do. And I think that it's sort of there. there's a little bit of um, I can't remember the character's name right now. But there's a little bit of his inherent vice going on with that character, which if you haven't seen inherent vice, God, I damn, have not. Good. I've heard oh, good things, but I haven't Im- seen it. Dude, vice. immediately watch it. Immediately watch it. It is wonderful. Actually, to be honest, the chick who was in uh, Alien Covenant and she was in um, Fantastic Beasts, it's honestly the only thing I've seen her in that I liked her. Okay, was inherent vice, but. I think that Max California is a great example of how this movie, you know, when people say talk about this movie, they say bleak. Bleak is normally the word. And I think the reason why it's so bleak is because not everyone is a hero. Not everyone is completely a villain. There is no, there is no explanation. There is no big reason. There is no big finale. There is no big resolution. There is no big Basically, like, kind of like there is no God, really, in this film. Because you'll see something and you go, oh, well, there's going to... This guy, Max California, he's definitely going to be the sacrificial lamb in this film. And he's going to have to go rescue him. And, you know, shit's going to go down. Yeah, I kind of... Spoiler, spoiler alert. This, you know, first Max time California this, doesn't I make it. That. I saw that cup coming a mile away. I'm like, oh, this... Poor kid, once they started getting into things, I'm like, this poor kid's going to die. You just know But the thing they don't give you, but that's the part, that's the bleakness. The part they don't give you is he never gets to say goodbye. There is no heroic rescue. He's way too fucking late. It's kind of reminiscent of, uh, I mean, in a really weird way, that part in Watchmen where they all show up to kind of fight the bad guy, and he says, I started the fucking countdown 30 minutes ago, where it's like, you don't necessarily always show up at the right time. You don't have all the time in the world. People aren't going to wait for you to get there to do their dirty deeds. So, yeah. like, it's uh, it's very... for. I mean, a lot of people would call this movie fantastical. I totally disagree. I think that it's very possible. This whole movie is very, very possible. Except for the smoking thing. That's, that's yeah. science fiction. Because, you know... But the rest of he just grabs some air freshener, spritzes it, and he thinks that's good. I'm just smoking in the basement. She'll never Jesus. know. Like, who's he, who's he kidding? That was like us as teenagers trying to think that our parents didn't smell weed on our jackets when we came home. Like, come on. <laughs> Why does your office smell like an, a, an ashtray full of lilacs? Yeah. Uh, smells like somebody but, shit a uh, Christmas tree in here. What the fuck? But so, you know, Tom Wells starts doing his moves. 
Yeah. He's kind of moved from place to place. And, and I love that they kind of gave him that mundane thing, which I don't think they do a whole lot of movies anymore. It's almost sort of like that. It's almost like the buildup of a heist. I love to see the buildup where like in the heist, you're getting things ready. You're, you're making moves. You're doing this stuff before anything ever happens. And this, I love scenes where people are looking through microfiche. I love microfiche scenes. Love them. Yeah. I miss those machines. I can't count the amount of hours I spent at a microfilm machine, you know, when I was a fucking teenager in my early teens. Oh, sure. I think they still use them for genealogy and stuff. But, but yeah, small, fact, town, just, small I, town family man's going to learn today. He, he's going to learn about the world in a whole different light today when he get, when he finally finds uh, old Mary, uh, what the hell was her name? Mary Ann Mary Matthews. Ann Matthews. Yeah. I love the reveal of the scene. You're talking about the microfilm. What I like is when they actually, I, I should preface this as saying, I don't like the snuff film, but I like when they do the reveal of the snuff film where it's a shot on Nicolas Cage where everything is obscured, where you never really see what he's seeing. You know what I mean? You're just seeing his brilliant. reaction to it. And this is like, yeah. you don't need to see it. You've seen his reaction to it. And in his eyes, you, through his eyes, I, I, I thought that was brilliantly done. So I do have a question. Do you think that when, as soon as it's over, and he goes back into the room to talk to Mrs. Christian and and uh, and uh, Longdale, when he says, "Okay, well, I watched it, and I think this stuff could be. I think you should take this to the cop to make it whatever." So, do you think that was he was trying to escape right there? You think he was trying to back out right there? You know, I think maybe partially, but I think he was just being practical. He was just telling them what he thought they should do. He's like, yeah, okay, you, you got a, you know, a murder on tape, possibly. T- do the logical thing. Don't take it to me. Take it to the police. I don't think he had any idea how deep it was going to go. So I don't really think that he was trying to back out of it, per se. But there might have been that, you know, animal instinct in the back of his head that, you know, that, that gut feeling that it was just like, mm, maybe you don't want to take this one, Tom. So I have an, uh, I have an insight as... A pretty new father, Archie just turned two at the end of March. So as a new newer father, I found the instance where he comes back home after watching the film, after kind of wrapping things up with Mr. Chris, or Mrs. Christian, and he first place he goes is into his uh, baby daughter Cynthia, Cindy, her bedroom, uh, the nursery, and he looks down into her crib. And he just sort of looks at her, and what occurred to me is I know that he feels stained and he's afraid of sort of like touching her, mm-hmm. you know, in case he might pass the stain onto her or, or he felt unclean. So he didn't want to touch her and all that kind of stuff. I think that from my point of view, I understand where, he, where he went with this, but in my point of view, I would have to be, I would, I wouldn't have gone to her room first. I think I would have gotten in the shower, changed clothes, and I would have had to have held her. Had to. I would have had to have held her. I think he may have been trying to make it so that it wasn't real. If he had held her, maybe it would have been too real and he would have broken down his wife. Right, her. right. Yeah, it's, I think he was protecting himself almost as much as her. And that's where kind of like that moral ambiguity happens. He's like, I kind of, this time around, I kind of had a different feeling about Mrs. Christian. Because oh, really? Yeah, I mean, like you said, it's it's we're going nonlinear, but there's kind of like an impactful thing that Mrs. Christian does, and I always thought that 
uh, before, I always thought that it was this thing where she felt like she couldn't take the she couldn't take the knowledge of what she what she knew, and that's why it happened. But now I'm starting to wonder if she because I my kind of posed this question. I, I did make notes on this one. I kind of posed a question to myself: Would Mrs. Christian have done what she finally does if it would have been fake? Uh, I think absolutely not. If it had been fake, she so, probably so would have just thought to herself, "Okay, my husband had a weird kink that I didn't know about." You know, if, if, so, if, that, if it hadn't so that's my thought, too. That's what I thought, too. And I think that's why that takes the moral component completely out of it for me. I don't think that she felt shame in a moral way at all. I think she felt shame in a public way. So she's actually not. So even her innocent innocence and her uh, victimization is even cheapened by the fact that or by the summation that. She would have she wouldn't have done that if it would have come out, because really, if you think about it, it's only one thing removed. If somebody would have found out about that, it's still a porn thing that he commissioned with an underage girl and they're faking this brutality. So, like, it really wouldn't have been that far removed from the other thing. So the, the thought that she would not have done it. If it would have come out as fake, means there's no moral. She has no moral qualms at all. It's all about the public persona. Well, I it's think, all about the reputation, legacy. I, I don't know. Think it was so much about the the legacy or his rep, reputation or whatnot, because she seemed awfully fixated on one thing. She, she wanted it proven whether or not it was real, because she wanted to know. She kept saying, "I have to know it." With that young girl died. I think it bothered her so much that this young girl had, you know, was being killed on there. She was more or less concerned of finding out who she was and whether or not she was still alive. But I have one counter, but I only have one counter on that. Okay. We don't get to see her talking to Longdale alone about that. If Longdale, like, let's say that Tom walks out and then she's still talking to Longdale, Longdale would say something like, did you mean what you said? And she would be like, it doesn't matter the ending is still the same because yeah. even if she doesn't, yeah. because I think in that movie, you have to take it for granted that everybody's lying. Everybody. In fact, I don't even really believe, I think that, uh, I don't know, Amy, Tom's wife. Yeah. I'm not uh, even sure that, uh, Catherine Keener. Yeah. Catherine Keener. She was, she, she was great. That was the first thing I remember ever seeing her in. I, uh, I don't like her. It seems like she has, she doesn't have a whole lot of, I think she puts out a lot of heart. I think she talks a lot of heart, but I'm not so sure she has a lot of heart. Because with Tom Wells, he's a very, I think duty isn't the proper word for it. It's almost mission. It seems like he has a mission for the truth. Because he does, he goes through a lot of bullshit just for the truth, where he could have, even duty at some point would have been shirked. Where he'd be like, okay, this this ceases to be my duty when such and such is whatever. Well, it's summed up perfectly in that note that uh, Janet gives him that he reads off at the end, which you know we can talk about here or later or whatever. But uh, I think it's all summed up there when you know she writes down the words when she says, "In the end, you you and I were the only two that ever really cared about her." I think he felt okay. a connect, you know, a connection there. Or, or someone, I think it was through his daughter. 
you know, somehow okay, you know, so that, he was projecting. That brings up one thing I just want to mention in, in very abbreviated way. You and I had talked kind of off the air about this gigantic thesis that I was going on when it comes to like the naming of these guys. But in a slight, slight way, I uh, I noticed that his name is Tom Wells, but then when he used a pseudonym, it's Tom Hart. And I don't think that that's, that's about as on the nose as you can get because this guy is, it, his heart, it runs through everything he does except for his wife. I think that he has, it's almost as if like this weird familiarity breeds contempt thing where she. Yeah, yeah. But I'm not so sure that's his fault because it seems like, I don't know how like saccharin to you, it seemed whenever he would call, when he would walk in, I mean, okay, all right. You've been with yours for a while. I've been with mine for a while. How often do you walk in and she goes, oh, you're home. No. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. <laughs> so when she, so when she does it, constantly, when I'm gone for say a that, long time, <laughs> when I'm gone yeah, for a very yeah. long time. But I'm, I'm not so sure that he was gone looking for that senator's son-in-law for, for more than a couple of weeks. But with the, I can't remember what he said, but, um, but I think that, I think she may be putting on a lot of that stuff because it's like, oh, she's sweet and this, that, and the other thing. But then when it turns out that he's having to do something hardcore, then she's like nettling him constantly. Why do you want to make that money? What's, why is that money so important? Why are you leaving? What's up with this thing? And yeah, people miss each other and you need to be there for your child and all that kind of stuff. But I think that sort of gets thrown by the wayside that this guy is like jumping into the maelstrom for a couple people, for a few people and their benefit. He's not doing this for nothing. He yeah, has basically I mean, has I, like, he has like a blank check. And to think that it's not all going to go to Amy is just silly. Well, He's going to hand see, Amy that check. She objects so much when he pulls out the gun. She's like, well, I don't know why you need to bring that. And he says something like, well, you know, something to the effect of better to have it and not need it than to need it and not then, have then it. Then don't bring it then. Then don't bring yeah. it then. Then just don't bring it. And it's like, uh, no. Like, hey, late. That couldn't have been the first. Couldn't have been the first time that he had to bring, you know, his his sidearm with him on a job if he's a private detective. Yeah, you know? I I didn't um, I, I didn't I would, like her. I didn't like the character. I like Catherine Keener. I think she's a fine actress, but I just didn't like the character. It was. I think that she was just. She puts on airs about love, but I don't. Especially since uh, there was that one line where he said, "It's something like it's not always going to be this way," and she goes, "It's always this way," something like that. And then she comes up with this little fake ass kiss that doesn't even land on him. Mm -hmm. And some people might argue that. Some people might argue that that's her being disillusioned by what he does. He's not home enough. But it's like, okay, you're writing textbooks at home. There's no way in a trillion years that you're going to make enough money to support everybody. And I'm getting in with these big wigs and just like uncovering their dirty secrets and stuff. And I'm not really getting dirty yet. And this one, I think that if there wasn't such a strong moral component for him, I think he's the one that has that moral center. And that's why, that's why I like the Tom Hart. And like Tom Wells, like Wells, even like that's a deep, that's a that's a well. He's a well yeah. of feeling. So I I think that he's meant to be the heart, and then you also meet Max, who is also kind of a heart, but you didn't think that at first, but as they go along, you realize he's a heart too. 
It's yeah. just that he had dreams. He that went into the crushed. cesspool to find his dreams. And he came out dirty. <laughs> it's like everybody. And he, and he was right. In the end, he was fucking right because he says it'll get to you. And by the end, it's I almost gets think, to, it gets to Tom. But I almost think that Tom is further tarnished. I think that being with Tom is polishing Max. I think he just needed a polish. I don't think that he was totally dirtied by everything. So I think that he was always kind of just like a punky kid. I think that he's seen a lot, but I don't think that it's stained his soul because he, I guess it's sort of that idea where if you live on the side of a cliff, falling off it isn't going to hurt as much if you lived in town. You know what I mean? Like for Tom, right. his fall, his fall was much f further than uh, Max. And I yeah, think that Max was a little bit higher up on the mountain. Yeah. Yeah. So Max was able to turn slightly. And I'll be, I mean, dead seriously, man, if I could change one thing, it would be Max. I would have loved it if, like, maybe 
not that I would say that I would prefer it if we never saw him again, but I would have loved to have seen him. I guess this is kind of like the Knives Out wish, where like you see Knives Out, you wish yeah. that Anna de Armas and Benoit Blanc work together again, but it, but you kind of can't have that happen. Yeah. So happen. with this, it would have been nice, but that does happen in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. So I guess with this, I kind of wish there may have been. I mean, let's say for the sake of argument, Max California gets really, really fucked up. And then in the last thing, you know, Tom gets his letter and he goes to see Max California in his coma and Max is awake and he's strumming his guitar. And then Tom can read his letter and the whole thing comes to But that, that would have given it, the movie the one thing that it absolutely does not have, which is hope. There's really no hope. <laughs> yeah, it would, um, if, you know, I'm just saying. Sorry. <laughs> There was there was another thing. Remember how I was talking about like peninsula hair and then like hangdog look, Nicholas Cage. Yeah, yeah. This is also his uh, eyebrows upward, uh, little puppy phase, where he <laughs> would look into the camera and the center of his eyebrows would be pointed up, and he would have this plaintive look on his. I guess that's his kind of like city of angels face, sort of. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of. So Captain you can Morales, kind of mark Mandolin. these eras. Right, almost like the Pagliacci, like the uh, that part in uh, Ferris Bueller where Cameron does the Pagliacci. It kind of looks like that. Uh, so he, <laughs> right. I don't think he's done that uh, again. I don't think he even did that in Pig. But um, I think that when you start getting into the great, the legendary James Gandolfini, you know, I, think I this was could have just been, uh, about to ask. I was going to ask. That was my next question is what you thought of Gandolfini in this. thought he was just thought, sleazy, <laughs> dirty, intense. His character, Eddie Poole, I wanted to see him die. I had no qualms about watching him die in that movie. Um, I, uh, I'll be honest with you. I did. I saw a performance out of James Gandolfini that didn't surprise me with the knowledge I have of his career now. But when you first look at it, if you didn't know what he was capable of, at the very beginning, he just seems like an everyday mook that you wouldn't even think twice about. But as his character goes along, there is, you know, kind of like the the superficial strong arm, and then there's kind of like the brush off, and then there's like the desperation on the phone. And he's actually shit scared. And then he kind of has to go back to these guys that I think that he doesn't necessarily like uh, interacting with as much as it might look. And then when he when Tom is sort of like getting his reckoning, because, I mean, the thought is that this guy brought her into the fold, right? Eddie. Yeah, he was the one that found her. Okay, so Eddie is the. I was really thinking about this because I think that you and I had actually spoke and I thought it was very weird because in the snuff film, Machine is the name of sort of the uh, the gimp mask torturer. And right, for right. a long time, because Machine gets his comeuppance from at the hands of Tom uh, later on in the film. And I always thought that Eddie's demise was much more brutal than Machine's demise. And I always kind of wondered about that because he definitely, Tom does not have a, you know, a, the quote unquote mono mono 
with Eddie nearly as much as he does with Machine, but Machine's end is nowhere near as brutal as Eddie's is. So I was thinking about that a lot today, and it occurred to me that Eddie was the because of, because I was on that name thing again. So I was thinking, well, machine is a tool. You can't have a machine without a human agent, without a human determination to get to do what needs to be done or what they needed to happen. So machine is a tool. So the, the tool is nowhere near as culpable as the, the human is. So I think that's like you said, with Eddie bringing her in to the fold. That's why his is so much more brutal and why it's sort of like the linchpin of Tom's degradation isn't the right word, but kind of like fall into darkness, I guess you'd say. Yeah, he yes. I mean, when he, God, man, the, the scene, we, I, I think it's, now it's high time we talk about it. The scene where he calls up, uh, when Tom Wills calls up Marianne's mother, Janet, he had, when he has Eddie tied up in that, like, that, burned out fucking warehouse or that factory you know and he's gonna kill him and you know he has that moment where like when ah, I, I love the scene where J- james gandolfini is just playing with the gun he had the guns in his face and he's licking the barrel he's like come on he's oh like, my god on. dude honestly he, dead so seriously, i think and... i think that is all gandolfini i don't i'm not so sure i don't think that was I like... <laughs> no 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 because because as far as i'm concerned that is little inklings and flashes of future soprano right there i think he was so he was so far gone and he knew he was done so he was defiant to the end even though he knew that he was to blame for everything he was still like what are you gonna do about it you gonna do this pussy like i think that's flat out i think that was showing his future prowess was doing that and i really agree with you i don't think that was scripted at all i think you know they probably told them you know just be skeezy. They don't just be skeezy and be defiant and spit in this guy's face. You Tom's know, and, a good guy for being moral, you know. You know, you're the all of a sudden now you're the demon, so be the demon. When he when when Tom takes off and he leaves in there, that the first time I watched this, if I if you would have told me what was coming, I wouldn't have guessed it. When he goes out and he calls up uh, Marianne's mother and he tells her, he's like, Listen, he's like, I gotta tell you, he's like, you know, they killed your daughter, they tortured her. They filmed it, they tortured her and killed her, and I have them. I want to make them pay, you know, give me permission to hurt them. I need it. <laughs> it's like, whoo, like that is just, you talk about like sucking the air right out of the room. Um, I have a question that I hadn't thought about until this very second. Yeah? Do you, how do you think that scene would have changed if he would have called Amy instead? Oh, I... She would have definitely told him not to do it. She would have told him, what the hell you mean you got some guy, you know, t- t- tied up and you're going to go beat him to fucking death and burn him alive, you know? I mean, uh, yeah, she would have told him, get the hell out of there and come home. Wait a second. You said burn him alive. Do you think he was alive when they, when he... Or not, uh, but 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 send his, uh, send his corpse on fire, I meant. Oh, I like that better, I spoke, though. I, I, spoke, I spoke out of context. I think... I, I think when, when uh, he beats him with that gun, he is definitely dead because there wasn't much left of his of his uh, skull. <laughs> there wasn't much left at all. So would you have liked it uh, more or less if it would have been a carpet tucker? Oh, uh, 
I refuse to answer that on, on grounds that it might incriminate me. <laughs> no, I, I like the way it played out. I like the way it played out. Because especially after the way uh, Gandolfini's Eddie Poole, you know, went, went, as defiant as he was about it, showing no remorse, I, don't, I wanted to see him pay for what he did. So the way it went down was the way it needed to go down. Honestly, I hadn't seen it in so long before I saw for this last uh, viewing that I kind of thought that he just kind of like, because he doesn't even just like put like wire around his neck up against the thing and his, his hands and he's sort of like yeah. stuck there. I kind of wonder if he just like left him there for the fucking animals and just to starve him to death, just to be exposure to death. And then when he, he when I didn't, I thought that that would actually have been more gritty until he calls Janet and I was like oh fuck that was insane and what a simple little thing to be so powerful that was so simple and so powerful nothing so grandiose nothing you know big and theatrical a simple cell phone call and he's just like I need your permission give it to me please I need it <laughs> I, I want it uh, a couple of notes Something though, else? I, do, I do have here Sorry. is Tom Wells sure was spending money like like it was fucking water when he was out there uh, searching for. Yeah, I definitely noticed that. Where he just he just calls her up. He's like, "I'm gonna need another fifteen thousand, fifty thousand." I was like, "Jesus Christ!" And the lady was like, "Okay." That just kind of shows how rich that lady was. Good God, man! Yeah, the two notes I had after that, but after James Gandolfini's part was that, and Joel Schumacher sure loves his Dutch angles, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, it really shows in like something like Batman, but I, but, but yeah, I mean, I, it doesn't that class, I mean, as a filmmaker, you know better than me, doesn't, doesn't that classically kind of scream the semaphore for like someone's break, like their, their reality is breaking down. Oh yeah. Or they're like off kilter. Yeah. So that makes sense to me. But what I was thinking about with the money, I mean, if you think about it, what do you say? What year was that? 1999? 99. Yeah. Okay, so 99, and you're going into a bookstore, and, I mean, it looked like he had something like maybe 12 magazines or maybe like 12 or 20, and he was coming out of there, and he was spending like $75 or something. For 99, that's still pretty fucking expensive. Yeah. And also, was he buying all that equipment that he had in the hotel room, too? Yeah, I, they never quite explain that, if that's equipment he brings with him or if that's just, you know, equipment that he bought on her dime. I, I got the impression that he bought it on her dime. That, that's what I thought. It almost but, seems to me like he would have had to have done that. But, I mean, I guess he used everything. He was really doing some serious uh, detective work. Well, he does. I mean, he goes all through the underground of film to, to you know, to where they're filming stuff, to where they're... Uh, they got like big swap meets and shit going on. I mean, that whole underground triple X like underground montage is pretty sick. You can you can see you can almost physically see like uh, Tom Wells's uh, skin like crawling right off his fucking bones. Yeah, I mean you're really you're in danger down there. Like you almost have to exude. I had someone told me one time, I guess that he his brothers and his father were, were special forces and they kind of taught him a lot of stuff about how you mentally like erase yourself in order to be like an invisible and like close quarters. So I think like with that, 
you almost have to become, and also that's, I mean, that's sort of like that whole like profiler image where you have to embody this thing in order to understand it in order for those guys not to smell him as, as like a, a square, he would almost have to be thinking thoughts that would, that would kind of like release this. I don't know what you call it, like a frequency where they wouldn't pick up on him quite so much, but all eyes were on him in that subterranean thing. And, uh, I can't remember what he said. He said something. Maybe he, maybe it was him just saying snuff that got that one guy. For a split second, I thought it was Danny Trejo. Um, oh, the guy with the, that had the machete, that the, the, the big knife that was going to come after him? Yeah. Yeah, he uh, just said so, they, they say snuff to him, and he was just like... I think like, that was kind of dumb. I mean, what, I, I, I think that, that he was... Like, Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> I think that for such a seasoned investigator... Which I don't do they ever like flat out say what his title is? No, no, I don't Which believe so. I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. But I just assume I, private uh, investigator. I think that walking. <laughs> oh, what <laughs> that reminds me of something. I can't remember what it is right now, but somebody walks in and goes, Anybody got any drugs? Where, whereas <laughs> it's like, Could you be more obviously square asking for? I mean, I guess he kind of starts out by saying, like, do you have anything harder than this? So I get he was kind of approaching it. So maybe that's when he was sort of getting desperate to find out stuff. But I love the I love those two guys sort of like rooming together slightly. Or mm-hmm. he would come over and he's like watching it with with Max. And you can see that Max is definitely reacting to it. So you can see that he's not totally gone yet. He was such a damn sympathetic character. Like Max California was a great, I hate his fucking name. It sounds like a goddamn Red Hot Chili Pepper song from the, (laughs) but uh, I think he's such a sympathetic character that him not getting the, Oh, isn't this your friend? And you get a little bit of that, but he's already done. Like there's no time for anything. Which just which just drives it home so hardcore that this could absolutely happen, and Tom does get captured by Eddie and the guy who made the tape, kind of like the auteur of the snuff film. Don't they call yeah. him the Jim Jarmusch of S and M? Yeah, I think that Max called him that, and yeah. it makes me wonder how many people watching the film would even know what the fuck he's talking about. But I thought Jim, it was very cool. Jim Jarmusch knows what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I thought it was, I mean, Peter Stormare, god damn, man. Like, that guy, he's been in some ratty fucking movies, but, man, he's got some ex, little X factor. It makes me wonder, I don't know much about him, but it makes me wonder if, for Fargo, if he was a known quantity or if they just sort of, like, plucked him out of the slush pile because if they did like that was a major league discovery finding oh like you said he's he's done some rough films i mean god he's got around 200 credits but everybody's a lot of a couple of shit movies and but they've done 200 pieces of work but i mean uh brothers grim for christ's sake what are you doing i think there's grim that was the only movie i've ever walked out of oh really the first yeah. time I watched it, I didn't finish it. I was watching it at a friend's house. I'm like, dude, can we put in something else? He's like, what do you want to watch? I'm like, something good. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's 
It's unbelievable. Was that a Gilliam? Yeah, I think so. Oh, man. I'm fairly certain. But I think I saw that around the same time that I saw uh, Big Lebowski. So it was just kind of like, yeah, you know, one's super great, other one, not so much. I think that the Brothers Grimm could have been saved by a couple of things, and one of them being getting rid of the gingerbread man. But anyway, sorry, that's just a... But Peter Stormare, I mean, when... Okay, so that performance gets obliterated by his Constantine performance. That's oh, yeah. way up. Did you and I have a talk about, like, devils in film? The devil? We Not not on the, on the air, but we've talked about it, like, off, off camera, off microphone. It, it seems <laughs> like that... Doesn't it seem like... There are very few guys who do the devil that A, suck, or B, don't bring something to the character or bring something to the performance. Because it seems like it's very hard to go, that guy was a shitty devil. Usually, guys, it, it very rarely happens that someone doesn't do an entertaining job as the devil. Yeah, I love What's the worst team. devil you've ever seen? The worst devil I've ever seen? Oh. It's it's tough. It's tough for me because I I can think of like ten off the top of my head, and they were all great in a bunch of different ways. Yeah, really ones that think I think of, of but right when I think of different, I don't think of a bad one. I'm sure as soon as we get off the subject, I'm gonna like one's gonna come to mind as soon as we change gears. But goddamn, I can't think of one. Because I mean, I, I mean, because you're tempted to say like Harvey Keitel and Little Nicky, but he was fucking hilarious. So that's like hard to say. He, he was like, hilarious in Little Nicky. And he was so he was so sweet. So like you rarely have that too. So And Rodney like Dangerfield is the father of the devil? His pops? Yeah. Oh my god. That was inspired. Vigo Mortensen and the Prophecy. That's probably my favorite devil. Uh, and that's another problem with me. I I saying favorite is tough. I'd almost have to say top five because Angel Heart, De Niro. The fuck out of here. That's like so insanely intense in that movie. Yeah, that's pretty good. Angel Angel Heart's so I guess, a favorite of mine. Yeah. I guess De Niro and Pacino both played the devil. Oh, wait, I almost forgot about Nicholson and Witch of the Beastwick. Sorry. I'm tired. Tangents. Now, when we were talking about Peter Stamere, and we got to mention a little bit about Dino Velvet. When Dino Velvet is revealed when uh, Tom Wells is going to have have him commissioned him to make another snuff film, to make him another art piece. And he shows up and the guy's like doing target practice with the crossbow. 
Did your <laughs> that first time like did your balls not crawl up inside your belly and t- tell every yeah. fiber in your feet and to tell him I to mean, get the fuck out of that building? Foreshadowing is much too tame for something like that. Like in life, if you walk in and somebody's doing that, you might as well say, "Okay, I've got one toenail in the grave already." Just for watching this guy do this, you know. I guess it's sort of like life also has uh, Chekhov's gun. Like sometimes in life, that could even happen, where it's like, you know, I'm watching this right now. The likelihood of that guy. You know, I just walked in for this job interview, and this guy's juggling knives. I'd say the likelihood of one of those knives going into my body just went up about 33%, just me walking in here, you know. They you say know, that, you know, just buying a pool makes it such and such more likely you're going to drown, you know. So it's right, if you right. walk in, somebody's firing a crossbow, the likelihood of you getting pinioned to something is pretty high. Uh, it's, it's a, as Hunter S. Thompson would say, you know, you buy a ticket, you take the ride. That's true. <laughs> Reminds me of a time I I interviewed for a job. I got a job working at uh, Long John Silver's, and I can talk about this fella now because he's since passed away. And we lived in the same apartment building. He invited me over to have some beer and watch a game one night. And I come through, and he's cleaning a 357 Magnum at his kitchen table. Fun times. I was just like, "Um, I'm going to go now. I'm (laughs) going to go. So I do have one question. Uh, So did you experience batter pants? (laughs) No, no. I I, I experienced pitter-patter pants. (laughs) Oh, boy. I just just went to my apartment, shut the door, locked it, and I'm just like, nah, I'm never hanging out with this guy outside of work. Believe it or not, that wasn't – I wasn't being uh, metaphorical. I I knew a guy who worked at Long John Silver's, and every day he came home with batter pants. Where oh, I don't know if they okay. just had a gigantic vat of that shit to make the Krispies with or what, but he came home covered in this like white grime like every day. Yeah, when I when I was a cook, I kind of did a little bit of everything. I did counter, I did cashier, I did drive through. I was a manager for a little while. I was a cook for a couple of years. But yeah, when I was a cook, yeah, you you got this big bucket of, of batter that hangs on the front of the, the fryer. And you dunk your hush puppies in one case, you know, in batter, and then the batter that goes on everything else from the shrimp to the chicken to the fish, and yeah, you end up splattered with it. You end up, yeah, you do end up with batter pants. But I thought you meant something else, a little, a little different. <laughs> that makes sense too. But I have to say, uh, in all honesty, I just wrote a movie in my mind called Batter Pants that you and I have to work on together. So we'll talk about that off the air. Yeah, definitely. I'm down for it. Okay, awesome. Pitter paddle. Let's get at her. <laughs> uh but when, when he to be fair to be sorry. fair to be fair hey 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 allegedly allegedly <laughs> oh god we we, we got to wrap this one up we're, we're both getting a little fucking uh punch drunk here from la- lack of rest i think <laughs> well but, i have to say um when he came in i thought there were two things that were running through my head I thought that it was I thought that the movie was going to go down because that guy, even with the for you know, having that idea of him firing the crossbow and stuff, it kind of seemed like he was sold because everybody's questionable. So, like, at what point do you there's just such a level of universal distrust? At one point, does your spidey sense go off? Because I guess my question was always, 
how much of a tip-off did Eddie really have to give Dino on this? Or did he just sort of go, hey, I have something to tell you, and then Dino go, I know what you mean, and then he already kind of surmised, like, how I'm far did Eddie... three steps ahead of you. Yeah. I've already fired this cross about 25 times in a photocopy of his face. <laughs> well, and you noticed in the background, when they're showing that over-the-shoulder shot, you can see uh, Max California pinned up against the wall. You can see him there, and Nicholas Cage has no idea. Tom Wilson's got no idea that he's there. It's just like, turn around. He's Great right move. over here. He's right over there. You know? Great move. I, I think that the, the thing, believe it or not, I think the thing that I found most loathsome about Dino Velvet were his fingernails. Oh, dirty motherfucker. Filthy bastard. Yeah, it's like, hi, I'm going to put like these really cheap translucent white nails on my fingers and then just like eat with them and and pick blood scabs off of the ground and d- just uh grossness yeah and tom tried to do the right thing he tried to do the right thing by sending max home but it was like i think it was too little too late because let's face it, like it, one thing we never mentioned here is that the entire time Tom is trying to watch these people and you know tracking these people, they're watching him. You know, there's always that figure in the shadow that's always watching him, and like they let like an Eddie Pool's character go kind of MIA for a while to the point where you almost forget about him. So when he steps out, is this kind of like oh. Yep. Damn it. There was still that motherfucker, like uh, the one loose end that he had forgotten about. But I think, like, I mean, I think they, you know, they were going to kill Max. You know, they were going to kill Max no matter what. But when the thing that came out that with this rewatch that I hadn't anticipated was when Mr. Longdale comes out. I had almost forgotten that he was still part of the picture. It was still it was it was a nice gentle surprise because it was one of those like oh that's what I forgot from the last rewatch you know well I this. think I was I was thinking about this a lot today when it came to Longdale because I was wondering at at this one at that one part where he sort of snubs because they react to him uh, about going to the cop or he says go to the cops and they react in two different ways the woman says. Totally out of the question. And then Longdale says, oh, that would be completely unnecessary. So, like, that's coming from two completely different points of view. So then when he decides to do it, and, like, once you look at those points of view, it makes perfect sense at the end. But when you look at, or when he looks around to Mrs. Uh, Christian, and then he says, I'm dealing with you and only you. Your thing with the lawyer is your own. No offense. He's not taken I think that that scene was to give the convenience of him being out of our mind for a while. So when he comes back and it turns out that he, he was mostly part of the surveillance or whatever, then it's, it's, it's kind of like a, a kapow, you know, like a Eureka because he wouldn't have been talking to long because in other movies or in other stories, he would probably would have been communicating to Longdale or through, you know, to Mrs. Christian through Longdale. Yeah. Whereas like in this a, case, as an intermediate of sorts. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So in this case, they cut that out of the, out of the body, like immediately that way it was a little bit more of a, whoa, at the end than it would have been. 
But I did have one question to ask you about this, and it's been bugging the shit out of me. I'm not so sure that I completely understand Longdale's motives with this whole setup. Yeah, I don't know who he thought he was protecting. If he thought he was protecting, you know, Mrs. Christian, or if he was trying to protect, you know, the the reputation of Mr. Long or uh, not Mr. Longdale, Mr. Christian. And I guess also another question was how was the because what I was kind of trying to formulate, but I I still don't think it quite works. Was that okay? He wants to get the tape out of her possession, and then he wants an investigation that would have gone through to be nipped in the bud. But since he's starting the investigation himself, what is he buying time for? Does he want him to be killed by by Dino and by Eddie from the very beginning? So that's why he kind of like lures him into this stuff. But by by that rationale, why even involve him? Why not just sort of fucking say, okay, Mrs. Christian, or is she so obstinate that she has to be part of it and she won't allow him to do anything on his own completely? Otherwise, yeah. he could have sort of like gotten rid of the film. Say he gave it to an investigator, and the guy disappeared with it, and all the other evidence and all that. Because um, at at some point, he has given her all the information that she would need to start a new investigation, and he didn't know that. And you know, spoiler alert: Mrs. Christian kills herself. So he wouldn't have oh, known I that know. she. Was- what a sad revelation that is when you find out. Like, oh, you, you get feel gut punched just like Tom does when he finds out. And he's like, what do you mean? I just talked to her like two hours ago. Like, yep. Which is, that is such a genuine statement. I, I think that was exactly what somebody would say in that in that. It's a realistic situation. statement. It's just like, you know, it's like, yeah. it's like the old George Carlin joke. And it's like, you know, do you hear Phil Davis died? Well, Phil Davis, I just saw him yesterday. He's like, yeah, well, it didn't fucking help, did it? <laughs> <laughs> But I wondered, like, what, what his, why? Because, like, at at some point, he would have given her, like, let's say she wrote it all down. So that means that there's a fucking notebook with that. Like, I don't, I'm not so sure I understand Longdale's motives in all of this. And that was the only thing that kind of nettled me at the end. Even through two watchings, I still haven't quite figured out exactly what the plan he had I mean, maybe him saying it's unnecessary was meant for the whole thing to just fall over and not happen. But then he he underestimated uh, Tom Wells's mission to get truth and to get justice for this girl from the very beginning. And they just strengthen, strengthen, strengthens. And I even now that we're talking about, it, I, I'm still quite not quite sure what. Yeah, me, me, me either. I can't quite. Now. I can't quite put a finger on it. Maybe he was just worried about the trail somehow, you know, leading back to him and uh, Mrs. Christian finding out that, you know, he had pocketed so much of that money, you know, and, and also, also that, that was the part that I also loved that, that uh, Tom Wells, Nicholas Cage's character uses that when he's handcuffed. Oh, so smart. Bed. That was he's so like, yeah, fucking smart. You took you spend the whole million? He's like, million? He's like, good friggin' move to let him know that he got paid a million and he had shortchanged them because they got paid, what, 10, 20,000 or something like that? Which honestly makes me think, because another thing that I've thought about through this entire film was, okay, this is case number 70. What was case number 30? Because it seems like he's 
he's he's very fearless for being as kind of a square as he is and and like finding about this underbelly and stuff he's very fearless like there are very few things where he's like oh my god i don't want to do that i could get fucking caught like he he always goes in always so it makes me wonder if the reason why he was so cool under fire with this was because there have been further things in his history i think so that have, because you know i it just seems like we're getting him whole cloth and we don't i'm not a gigantic uh, I, I don't have a gigantic problem with not knowing everybody's capabilities all the way through and having them you know be able to do stuff but that was such a smart move that it would have been great if at some point there would have been some kind of line dropped where you know maybe he was a hostage negotiator at some point or something because that was just so brilliant to have those guys fight amongst each other that it, it lent a, a chaotic element to the whole situation that gave him time to have some sort of whatever because man it's so simple because you see it in a bunch of movies but for some reason in my older age i've been like i can really tell when someone's really up against it and in, in this movie since everything is so realistic and bleak there's no guarantee that nicholas cage was going to make it out of that room even if right. he's the hero in a movie like this he might not have made it yeah, you know, so, there's never a guarantee until those final credits roll, you know, yeah. whether or not he was going to make it. And I, I remember the first time watching it thinking, eh, this is where everybody dies. And just about everybody does. I love when uh, 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 Mr. Longdale and Dino take each other out. But Dino's last words as he just, I love the love the way he says it in just a wimblesome whisper. He's like, killed them, machine, killed them all. And it's just like, oh, great. You just set the beast you know, you just sent Wolverine loose uh, with no restraint. I love how lopsided the the mask makes his face look. Yeah, yeah. It kind of looks like his nose is crooked to the side and his mouth is sort of slack to the side. Um, I guess slightly Leatherface-ish, maybe slightly. Um, but It's like when, something between Leatherface and The Collector. Well, I was also thinking uh, Buttonhead, Buttonface, or is it Buttonhead? I think it's Buttonhead from uh, from Nightbreed too. Oh, zipper zipper face? There's a button face. <laughs> they call him. I don't know what they call him. Zipper face or button? I don't face. know. They all work for me. Fucking Cronenberg. Uh, we'll just say fucking Cronenberg. Cronenberg. Yeah. <laughs> but I, when I was watching him chained to that thing, and I was like, oh man, he is in like a nest of vipers, who you don't know how far they'll go. There's no limits to these guys. They could torture you. They could fuck you and kill you. They could kill you and fuck you. They could eat you. Like, you have no idea. The, the tortures are endless. So I experienced what's known as, like, a, a scrotal diameter reduction. Because <laughs> 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 so I'm like, oh, God. And to be honest, when it came to Max California, I wasn't so sure they weren't going to take that fucking kid a piece at a time, to be honest. And just make Tom watch the whole fucking thing. Yeah, they actually did him pretty quick. I, I thought they were going to torture him in front of him. You know, I, at least first time watching. Seem it. Like, why does it seem like in the back of my head I heard inklings that there was a deleted, like an extended version of that somewhere? There might have been. I'm not sure. I know the, the, the movie had to go through lots of cuts 
lots of cuts to before they were going to give it a, a fucking R rating. So I'm sure that's very much possible. I also think that uh, it's not a it's not a, a uh, an accident that Dino has a crossbow, which is a penetration machine. You know, I mean, like that makes perfect sense. Why would he use a gun when he can use an arrow? Right. The um, shaft, even like it's got shafts, it's got a tip, like all that. It's it's all right there. Yeah, it's very uh, symbolic, you know. But yeah. oh god, the, the, I think the the harshest part of this movie is not even that scene. Not not the scene where Nicholas Cage beats, you know, Eddie Poole uh, to death. Not even the part when uh, he hunts the machine down, and the machine is just some guy listening to the Misfits. You know, while taking care of his mother and just some old guy named George with, you know, goofy glasses. The hardest part of the swallow of this ending, uh, the ending of this movie is when Nicolas Cage finds out that Mrs. Uh, Christian has killed herself. And she just writes simply in her note, try to forget us. Like, oh, yeah, right. you talk about plucking your heart out. Like, like you could, like the man could ever do that. Like anybody could ever do that, you know. Ah. I think machines, uh, I think that his home life, I mean, that may have been one of the most realistic parts of all, because that oh, yeah. absolutely happens. I mean, that's fucking, that's Ed Kemper. That's a whole lot of those real guys. That's BTK. Those are, that's a real guy, man. Like, that absolutely yeah. happens. And the, and the fact that there isn't this, like, you were talking about this, like, grandiose reason I think that was kind of the the theme. That was the underlying uh, sort of thesis of the whole movie was there's not a good reason for any of this stuff. Well, Longdale had even said, you know, the the reason why Mr. Christian did it, he did it because he could. Literally, that was the exact words. He did it because he could. It was there. This movie has something that a lot of people would bitch about in today's uh, today's film, which is it actually has like three endings. But somehow yeah. I don't think that I, I think that because it's tying up loose ends, I don't think that it sticks out like a sore thumb like it does in other things. No, because it has like the, the ending that you get with Eddie, the ending you get with George, you know, the machine, and then the ending you get with uh, Tom and his family in that and getting the letter. Actually, in, in that, uh, but actually, now that you say that, I missed one. So it'd be four endings because I see like the room. Like, Eddie could have run and never been found, and that would have been the end of all of it. But then he finds him, and that's another ending. And then he finds George, and that's another ending. And then he goes home and gets the letter, and that's another ending. So, but it doesn't stick out, because it's it's wrapping up loose ends, and I think that it works. I, I don't think that it takes away from it at all. I think the last uh, major note, or last two notes I have about this is one, Tom breaks a whole lot of HIPAA rules and does a whole lot of HIPAA violations by calling around the hospitals and getting the dude's information. He's like, oh, yeah, you know, posing as a police officer. He breaks a whole lot of HIPAA rules and, and I was thinking the same thing. And I, but I'm all right I think that, that I actually I think I actually looked over at Melanie. I said, when did HIPAA go into effect? Because I was like, I, I wonder I if he know. can scam all this shit as well as he could have done yeah, maybe in 99, maybe if I hadn't been around. You know, I hadn't did enough digging, but it just seems like he did. But at the same time, I'm all right with that. Yeah, and, but, I mean, it's all means to an end. 
and the, the the whole thing at the end when he returns home, he's a broken dude. He is so broken when he just starts shaking, and when the whole realization comes, like washes over him, like like turning on a shower head, and he just collapses, oh, and he just keeps saying, "Save me, save oh, me." Oh my god, that was so well, so simple. I think that the things that work the best in this movie is the simple. I think that if you were reading it in a script, it might not hit you quite as hard as it would if Nicolas Cage was delivering it with, with the intensity and the feeling that he did. Because, I mean, I think that he gets indicted for his level. But I think that when you when you see it in this instance, and it's like serious as a heart attack, I think it really comes off in a different way. Because that save me thing... That was fucking intense. Because, dude, I mean, I experienced a really sudden death of my mother. And I was reduced to to a level that I didn't think I would ever get to in life. And it's not that I'm like a, a big macho guy or anything. It's just that I thought that I had a fortitude that, that could weather that kind of shit. So when I see him that happening to him uh, after what's happened... Uh, it makes perfect sense and it drives it really super hard home. Just with like with Cynthia, I keep calling her Cynthia, but I think it's Cynthia. They call her Cindy, the baby. I think so. I think so. Yeah. The baby. Um, with that as well, like where I'm at, like I'm, I totally, the, the last few years have convinced me that you should always revisit films because the film might be the same, but you're different. You need to try that shit on for size later on. Because if you couldn't fucking stand it, you might be in a different place. There have been movies that I thought that I knew what they were, and I've watched them in a different part of my life, and it's completely fucking different for me. And this is one where there's some shit. Like people might, people will discount it. I, I think that I actually saw this movie for a first, for the first time. I think it may have been an accidental thing where I was over at someone's house and someone's mom was like, oh, I like Nicolas Cage. Let's put this on. <laughs> and actually, now that I think about it, there was a horrific instance of that. I remember my grandpa put Jacob's Ladder in one time at like Easter by mistake. Oh, oh man. That, that's not an I don't know. movie. <laughs> I think that he, because he was a huge like holy roller, and I think he saw Jacob. And he put it, he, I don't know what he thought it was, but he put that in. And, and I noticed like everyone wasn't in the room, like everyone was in the kitchen. And then they, they started to filter in right in like the dance scene where like the big bat demon like impales that woman with the fucking, the phallic thing happening. And I was like, yeah, hey, yeah, yeah. everybody. Like that was definitely something where I was kind of like, I was like, happy Easter, everybody. And I was like standing in front of the television. I like reached behind me, like turn the volume down, turn the fucking screen off. Like, yeah. <laughs> but so eight millimeter was kind of like a surprise. I, cause I think that was also kind of like in his, like, I might be getting the time period wrong, but it was like eight millimeter snake eyes. Like it was kind of a little bit of a, a quiet time where he was still making big stuff, but it was kind of like understated sort of well snake eyes was like the palmas you know he came off of doing like big stuff like con air the rock and face off you know some big actiony kind of stuff so i think this was kind of seen as a more of a low-key kind of movie but i think people thought it was going to be more dramatic i didn't think they i don't think they thought it was going to be such a gut punch 
I don't know if it was a critical darling or not, to be honest, but I, I think it should be if it isn't. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, financially successful. I mean, I know it made more than its uh, budget back, so, I mean, that's something. But at the same time, I, I think just concerning the subject matter, is this not something that's uh, wildly seen? I think most people have seen it like, oh, it's about a guy, you know, investigating a girl getting murdered in a snuff film and it's really happy-go-lucky stuff i think there's a certain market of people as soon as you mention that they're just like well i'm never going to watch that well well, i mean if you think about it i I think that they were like okay well we need a we need a consultant on this but they have to be on the download so who's hanging around hey harvey yeah you harvey weinstein why don't you show us where all this stuff really exists so we can save a lot of money on uh on uh (laughs) what do they call that long location you can just like you can lead us in. You can be our Max California right here. Just you know, give us the code key, give us the secret handshake, or he dick was, shake as or whatever, and then we'll get. He in was too busy need. hanging out with like Roman Polanski at the time. I'm sure he was too busy being uh, being berated by uh, Troy Duffy <laughs> at the time. <laughs> it's oh, like motherfucker, who the fuck are you, Boondock Saints forever? <laughs> <laughs> Ludic's, Ludic's Shut up, motherfucker! Oh my god! But uh, uh, I, I think with with a movie like this, when you had mentioned uh, possible cage things, it was the first one that came to mind for me because I think that it when you when we were talking about underrated, honestly, my first my first choice would have been eight millimeter. Uh, but since we were doing an eight millimeter, I didn't want to mention that one uh, because I, I think that it's just in the last little while that people are finally starting to give it a second. Because, I mean, if you think about it, when it came out, people aren't necessarily going to be saying, oh, my God, James Gandolfini or, oh, my God, Peter Stormare or, oh, my God, Joaquin Phoenix. So, like. I think that now yeah. that we have the the benefit of having seen what Gandolfini was capable of, what Stormare is capable. I mean, you you already saw what Stormare was capable of. You just didn't know it. And then what uh, what Joaquin was capable of. So now they're like, oh man, how did this slip past us? And I think that they're giving it another shot. And it's also serving to sort of give give people a second thought about the life career and catalog of uh, Joel Schumacher for sure, because there's so much you could completely, uh, it almost makes me wonder if you put a timeline up and all of a sudden you just dropped the Batman films out of his catalog. If people were like, Oh fuck, he's a great director. Like, I, I think that if I think those stained his whole life. Oh yeah. And then definitely stained everything he'd made, you know, pretty much since then. Which is unfortunate. Do you happen to know off the top of your head um, what the, the last few things he did was? Um, I it seems like he was, I got the he was in. brought up right now. It looks like the last thing it he It seems like he did, was in and then he was gone. Well, he died in 2020, and his last thing he directed was in 2013. He did a couple of uh, episodes of House of Cards. He, and he did a movie the year before called Trespass, which coincidentally had Nicolas Cage in it as well. And I don't but, think uh, anyone paid attention to that movie either. No, I think that came and went with a little fanfare. And before that, he did a couple of shorts. He did do a movie that I, I actually liked a lot. It was called Blood Creek. 
the kind of like you know i think uh, you mentioned that to me and i i haven't tried that out yet yeah it's uh it's got henry cavill uh dominic purcell in it it's pretty it's pretty good is that the one where he's hunting a serial killer or is that like midnight or something uh no this 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 is the one about uh um it's like an occult kind of movie dealing with the third reich during world war ii oh shit that sounds awesome yeah it's uh Got, I think it's got Michael Fassbender in it. I'd have to look up to be be sure. It's wow, been a while since I seen awesome. it. it. Was one of his rare, rare forays into like legit horror. Uh, I just remembered another era of uh, of Cage that I think might have been exhibited in that Trespass movie. There was the Hi, my hair is a bird and I have no sideburns <laughs> uh, level. I don't know what the hell happened with him where he's like, hi, I either have Elvis sideburns or my sideburns are cup way up over my ear, which is weird as fuck, too. Bangkok yeah, Dangerous. Yeah. Let's get crazy with it. I don't know. There. Uh, Bangkok Dangerous. I tried to forget that movie. Uh, I have a lot of trouble with that movie, as I do with a lot of remakes, but we'll save that one for another time. And then, you know, I mean, I I, I need to listen to, well, I mean, I guess it, I'm not I'm not sure what's happening with it yet, but uh, the Drive Angry, that was one that was so much fucking fun. It makes me wonder sometimes, because it's like, okay, Ghost Rider could have been this, but it wasn't this. But it was this. Why wasn't it this? Like, every time I see Drive Angry, I think, okay, well, Hell has a lot factors in a lot with this, except he's in a car instead of on a motorcycle, and he isn't personally right? possessed, but he has, like, the God Killer... It is seen, it's almost as if they said, okay, what went wrong with Ghost Rider? Let's make it right with Drive Angry. Let's put a little bit of shoot 'em up in there. Let's, let's fuck that girl running around the room shooting. That, that man, Drive Angry is great. So, if, Drive honestly, Angry is fucking would, awesome. I wanted to put 8mm on the map because I, I honestly hope that if someone hears us talking about it, they'll go out and try it because it is a major league need to see. Not if you want to have like a nice cheerful night or anything, but if you really want to see uh, a bunch of actors before their prime and one kind of in his prime, like that's can't get well, much better. I mean, speaking of people that you know, I know we're we're kind of rounding things up here, but speaking of people that were like not in their prime before they were in their prime, what about little young Norman Reedus? You know, playing Warren Anderson, the 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 guy who uh, ran off the Hollywood with the girl. In that one little um, scene that's in that prison, what an asshole! Like I'm not, I'm not, gonna not get Norman a cross, Reedus, but I mean the, the character he plays. I'm gonna get a crossbow bolt through the face for this, but I think Norman Reedus is a one note hack. <laughs> I, I'm sure you're not. The I was first talking to, a, to say that. <laughs> I was talking to a, I was talking to a friend earlier, and I said, "Okay," and I was kind of like you know making fun. I was like. All right, Norman Reedus is like, hi, I'm this big shot producer. We can really give you a, a new lot on life. Like, yeah, what are you going to do for me? Well, first of all, we'll get those two pink eyes that you've been running around with on your face. We're going to get those all cleared up. We're going to get some, like, anti-clamidial shit, <laughs> and your eyes will open up again. Oh, uh, okay, that's kind of a look. Uh, and then we're going to shave your head. Oh, Jesus, what? Yeah, and then we're going to shave that crustache goatee off your face. Wait a minute, you're fucking with my whole... No, 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 and also, you're going to have to wash... <laughs> you're going to have to take a shower every day. <laughs> my career! You see it going down the drain. It's like, uh... 
be like telling there are El- women. Be like telling Elvis to shave his sideburns, man. Like, what are you talking about? There are women who act like they want to lick his armpits, and I do not understand it for the life of me. <laughs> I like him fine, but at some point, it's like, okay, uh, Scud, how you doing, Scud? Yeah, <laughs> you're you're still Scud, and you haven't changed from Scud except <coughs> the stringy. Uh, the stringy octopus that died seven years ago and you put on your forehead, that's just, just growing longer and longer, and you're not getting older. You're just getting more weathered. It's almost as if he got, like, a, a two-liter jug of uh, Keith Richards's, you know, Wonder Tonic, and he's been drinking it for the last 10, 15 years. He doesn't get older. He just gets more weathered. I would love to see that guy throw me in a park. He's been Daryl Dixon his entire career. I do, I do There's appreciate nothing. you making a, a Scud Blade Two reference, though. I like that. Thank you. Hey, Thank you very much. hey, no, no problem at all. No problem at all. <laughs> uh, I, I just, uh, sorry, I just that guy. I like him fine, but I am never gonna say that he he blows my anything. He's just, it's the same fucking thing. I mean, honestly, no, seriously, if you were to put hair extensions in his uh, Boondock Saints performance. It's Daryl Dixon. It, you it's take the Dar- gun it's out of Dar- the- Daryl Dixon with an Irish accent. Barely. Hanging on for dear life. It, it's, it's hanging on even less than Mary Riley. Julia <laughs> Roberts and Mary Riley. Have I told you that I've had to put that on mute and just, oh no, sorry, not mute, sorry. I've actually taken, I, I came up with a solution for Mary Riley. You watch it in a different language with English subtitles. That's the only way to deal with that movie. I've actually never watched it. I'm not. I'm it's not worth. Play. Listen, it's worth seeing because it is an awesome film. Her fucking accent ruins the whole thing. So if you put it in like French, and then you watch it with English subtitles, perfect. That takes care of the whole problem. Gotcha, gotcha. It's kind of like watching Robin Hood. Prince of Thieves and having to put up with Kevin Costner's lack of a British accent. <laughs> that that Which accent is so strange. Is fleeting than the hippie movement in the '60s. <laughs> it's more fleeting than uh, than Britney Spears' hair in, ni- in, in 1998 or whatever that was. Um, it's more fleeting uh-huh. than Lady Gaga's steak dress. Um, yeah, that was. Yeah, it, it was. It was more relevant than that dress. I wonder if she walked out of there, just walked out, took the dress off, went naked into the limousine, just tossed to a bunch of homeless guys sitting out there. That would be pretty cool. She probably took it to a hibachi restaurant. It's like, throw that on the grill, would you? Would you? Just throw it on the grill for me. Yes, we can. Uh, uh, well, since we're not talking you know about Britney Spears, we're, we're, we're getting down to the wire. We're talking Britney Spears' hair and Lady Gaga's dress. I think oh, there's it's one, wait a second. There's, there's one more thing I wanted to mention before it was all over. I think that this title was perfect because it sounds like a gun. Eight millimeters sounds like a gun, but it has everything to do with the film instead. Mm-hmm. You know, all you have to do is like put it up one number and you got a gun. So I think that it instantly sounds hard and tough and mysterious just because of that. It's a very unusual title. And I, it makes me wonder if, if that, might have heard it in the long run, but I thought it, I loved the title. Well, I think there was a lot of things that hurt this movie, and I'm not saying that as a negative because I think you probably know where my ratings coming in at when we get to it. But because uh, I'm coming in pretty high on this, 
but I think sure. just just the the subject matter alone, uh, they had to fight for it to get this movie made. It was not a you know, it was a, I mean it was a box <laughs> office success, but it did get mostly negative reviews. All but everything they cut out, it still didn't you know. I think modern audiences, you know, at the turn of the century, were not ready for this, and they're probably still not ready for some dark subject matter like this because it, it makes you explore some areas that you wouldn't normally want to explore. But uh, I think it's a it's a fucking exhilarating film. I love it. But that being I said, think that this was oh, sorry. I was just going to say. I think that being said, we need to get into our final thoughts and ratings on this yeah. sucker. And okay. you know, you know as well as I do. Guests go first, so rating on a scale from one to ten, if you will. I would say uh, this is kind of tough to not to not rate it a ten, to be honest with you, because it's. Uh, I think that you know what I'm just gonna rate it a ten, because I I think that it's immensely rewatchable. I think that it shows a level of Nicolas Cage's nuance that. People have forgotten. I think there's so. I think that everyone pays attention to his his highs and his uh, his, his frequency at the top of, of the register. I don't think that they really pay much attention. Like we were talking about adaptation off the air. Mm-hmm. I think yeah, that yeah. people. I think that people latch on to. It's almost like you know you're on the internet. The thing that people pay the most attention to is the negativity. So I think that with this. They're paying attention to his freakouts, and they're not paying attention to the the quiet mechanisms that he that's going through his mind when you see his face, and when you like you were talking about what you don't see on the screen is is put together so chillingly in his reaction to what he's seeing and the light across his face. Like if that isn't the sign of a good actor, I don't know what is. And the the pace is very well done. It's amazing how balanced the pace in the, in the movie is for as much as going on in so many different facets of his life and so many identities that he's going through as he's going through like the arc of the story. It's amazing that it doesn't come off too slow or too fast. I think that it's paced perfect. I love the idea that it's, I mean, people talk so much about uh, expectations, subverting expectations right now. I think that this movie is the king of that without screaming it because there are so many things that you think you're going to get because you don't think that the movie is going to be brave enough to not give you those things. And this movie doesn't give it to you. You don't have the, the final farewell. You don't have him finding hope. You don't, I mean, even the, the, the thing that you see at the end, it isn't relief it isn't hope. It's almost as if like this final ch- link in the chain has has connected. Yeah, and it's yeah. the pain, the degradation, and the darkness is still there, but it means that something has the circle has closed in some kind of way. But the only problem is it's around his neck. Like this is an albatross for him forever, and uh, the movie is powerful. Like you said, it's exhilarating. You get to see some top-notch acting. You get some to see great sort of man. You, you get to see the moves of a. I mean, I can say a master director because to see there are differences in color 
And there are some people who say, well, he did orange on one half and like blue on the other half. Well, you have kind of like the dingy rainy side. And then all of a sudden it's like stark because you're in California. And then it's like as, as greasy and dingy as you know how, but you can still see everything you're looking at. So like he, he knew exactly what he was doing and it was, it was a masterful ride. Eight millimeter is, is wonderful. So and 10, very biting. So 10 out of 10 for you? I think I'm going to have to. Uh, normally, I feel sort of hamstrung, like I can't give it a perfect score. But I think in this one, there there was very little that I didn't get something out of. I, I guess uh, the, only thing, the only thing I don't quite still understand, but I don't mind rewatching it to decipher it, is, uh, is sort of like the full-on motive of what Longdale was trying to do. But I'm not afraid to try to watch it again and try to see if I can't pick up on it. So there you go. See, I'm close to I'm close to you on this one. I'm I'm close to the ten. I I can't quite give it a ten uh, because there's two things that I I I find at fault about this movie, and I and I'm coming in at a nine and a half. I've given it. I'm not going to just a half a star off from being perfect because of. Of a couple of things. I think the pacing in the beginning, before he really starts getting into things, when he's uh, like investigating and whatnot, seem a little tad bit long winded. Some of the shots go on for a little long. And I also, I kind of feel like the Longdale thing is just, it, it feels confusing to me is like, what was his end game? What was his deal? And the Amy character that Catherine Keener plays. I, I really like her as an actress, but I didn't like the character. Other than that, the movie is damn near perfect to me. You know, uh, I mean, you know what, you know what occurs to me? It makes me wonder if those cuts you were talking about might have made the Longdale part suffer somehow. Yeah, might have. I'd love to see an uncut version of this. I think it's been put out or it's getting ready to be put out by Scream Factory. Oh, seriously? <laughs> I think it's oh, like wow. Screen Factory, or, yeah. Screen Factory or oh. Shout Factory might even be Arrow or something. But I did read here Ooh. just recently that they were going to be doing a special edition of this. So hopefully, hopefully. But uh, yeah, I I think I'm going to mirror image some of the things you've already said. The casting in this movie is, is top notch. Even though you don't like Norman Reedus, I did like. I I made a note. And I'm like, oh, little Norman Reedus, baby Daryl. You know, I, I say, don't take me the wrong way. I like Norman Reedus <laughs> fine. I just don't think he's doing a damn thing different. I think it's all the same true, shit. True. But it was just neat to see him play such a despicable character, like just such a piece of shit. And all the things he says about that poor girl. And, and you know, at this point, like uh, she's probably has, you know, she, she has shuffled loose this mortal coil and he could give two shits less. He's just like, uh, you, you know, know, the best it, acting it, he's ever done. I can tell you right now. You remember that part where he points and says, where he sees the cat get blown away? And Boondock Saints, and he goes, can't believe that just fucking happened. That's the best <laughs> acting he's ever done right there. That's probably it. Yeah, that is probably true. <laughs> Are you sure it's not when he said Papa's got a brand new bag and, and, and as Scud and Blade 2? Yeah, I'm pretty sure, yeah. <laughs> John Travolta did it better. Yeah, uh, definitely. But yeah, I mean, um, everybody is great, and it. it's James Gandolfini. Uh, some of his, 
sleaziest and slimiest. Peter Stormare is great in it. Anthony Held is, is uh, Longdale. He's great. Everybody is really great. It was, to me, a, a breakthrough role for Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, and, you know, um, Nicholas Cage is just, you know, off the charts. It's fucking phenomenal in this movie. Again, you know, uh, shown once again why he is a master of his craft. But, yeah. But, you know, 10 out of 10 and a 9.5 out of 10. I, I can say that a pretty good score for the show. Can I say one more thing before? Sorry, I, I, I keep remembering these things. <laughs> Go there, was for one, it. there was one thing about Joaquin Phoenix's performance that I didn't mention, which was it would have been so easy with this character and this level and this placement that he was in to have been the loud mouth, absolutely, totally sarcastic, annoying, uh, too edgy for edge type thing. And they never went there. They really made him legitimate. And I think that that made the character so much more memorable. And it was so, so much more of a gut shot when, when everything went down, I think that we felt a loss I felt a loss when Max California died. Well, I think you so know, that I, was the full intention because you know Tom Wells feels that loss when he when he gets popped. You know, so you know you're meant to feel it as much as as uh, Nicholas Cage's character does. But he could have been Matthew Lillard and Hackers, you know. Yeah, he could have been loud and he could have been in your face and he could have been so edgy to edge and he didn't have to. He just didn't have to. And I almost think that that had to have been a choice, his choice. I think that he may have done that himself. Because when you look at him from a distance and he hasn't spoken yet, not even when he's behind the counter. Because behind the counter, he does show like a vulnerability even then. Yeah, he but does. But I think that when you, see, when you see him, you think he could easily just be like, oh, man, you don't even want to go down there. Oh, shit. Like he could have been ah, just so much, so different. And uh, it's yeah, he could have played yeah. that role so fucking differently. But yeah, yeah, he was great at it. Uh, like I said, breakthrough role. And think of like a couple of years later, he'd be playing in Gladiator. Just totally going off the charts. Yeah. Well, I think we could sum this one up and put a pin in it for the evening. Uh, this has been an exhaustive subject. It, it was an, it, it, this movie itself was an exhaustive, exhaustive watch. You know, well, it's, it's not I'm, a movie that you can watch just any time you can't just you know you just can't all willy-nilly you look at your wife and go how do you want to watch eight millimeter tonight you know <laughs> just does just you know not not all the time if, if you find a woman like that, that then god you know please you know keep her keep your keep your claws you know into her at all times well, go i once once upon a time i had i had my nephew my girlfriend my nephew and his girlfriend and me I had them over for a marathon, a movie marathon that I called the Mindfuck Movie Marathon, and it was Memento. Oh, jeez. The, mach- the Machinist. Oh, damn. And the, and the Jacket. Oh, god damn! That was a hell of a trio, man. Are you trying uh, to break their souls? I, <laughs> I said Mindfuck, and they said yes. So hey. But with this one, I almost think that if you were to watch seven and eight millimeter, that might be the one. Where it's like, hey, you kind of like clap your hands together. Okay, everybody, we got the pizza, we got the wine, and um, we have taken all the razors out of the house. So now it's time for the double feed, the Andrew Kevin Walker double feature. Oh, 
And the thing, you know, uh, I got to mention one other thing, too. Uh, you just made me think of it. It was one thing that I had in my notes at the very top, and I skipped over it. But Andrew Kevin Walker also did Sleepy Hollow. You know, again, you as you mentioned, Seven. But he did a, one of his first scripts. I think it was his first script was uh, Brain Scan, which is a big-time favorite of mine. Oh, that's, that's, fuck. I love so have that you movie. done Brain Scan yet? No, I have not. I've been saving that one. I love me some brain scan. I'm saving. I'm saving that one for a rainy day. Okay. Well, if you if you're ever putting like the bingo numbers in for who the co-host is going to be, put my name in the in the hat. For that. You got it. You got it, sir. It's all yours. Awesome. Because I, I I honestly cannot stand Edward Furlong, and I love Brain Scan because it seems like the same way. he got he got everything he deserved in that film, but somehow he still came out the other end. And I, there were a lot of people who were screaming that they were they were trying to make a, a secondary Freddy with that, and I disagree. I yeah, I, I love I brain think scan. That's everybody's go-to phrase whenever they they have a killer that is a wisecracker. If they crack wise while they're being a horror villain, then they automatically their go-to is like, oh, it's just a Freddy clone. Like Freddy was the first yeah. person to do it, and the Freddy was the last person to do it. Yeah, I mean Freddy might have done it best, but you know, come on. I think, yeah, the, I think the Trickster is, is fantastic. Was, uh, yeah, Trickster, one of my favorite all times, unsung horror villains, underrated, should have been a franchise and wasn't. It is uh, is sacrilege that that didn't become an ongoing franchise. I think they were trying to make it a franchise, but just didn't work out that way. You know, now that you're saying this, I think I'm going to be forced to look around at like Creepy Co and like Cavity Colors and see if they have. Uh, I know there's somebody I'm forgetting. Look around and see if I can't find Fright a brain rags. scan T-shirt. Fright rags, yeah. I may have to look around for a brain scan T-shirt. I would love to have one. And if you find one, you send me that link, brother. Will do. Right on. Well, we'll stick a pin in this one for the evening. We have been reviewing and dissecting 8 millimeter from 1999. Folks, thank you once again for joining us for another episode of Brilliantly Insane, The Age of Cage. I have been your host, Cameron Scott. This has been your co-host, Corey Dawson. Once again, thanks, Corey, for giving me a couple hours out of your schedule. Appreciate always it, as pleasure. always. Always a pleasure. Right. Uh, everybody go to uh, visit FMQ on Facebook. That's my new little uh, uh, fast food dining justice project. And where can they find that? Uh, uh, FMQ on Facebook. I'm still getting it worked out on where I can go. It stands for Fast Food Mediocrity Quarterly. <laughs> so there, there's a uh, there's going to be a link that will take you to a questionnaire where every time you have a, a bad experience through the drive-thru, you just plug in all the criteria about what happened while you were there. And every three months, I'm going to put a report together. I'm going to put it out publicly. Ah, nice, nice. Because, I mean, how many times, how many people you talk to are like, oh, they forgot my fucking fries or they got this wrong. Uh, I think at some point, no one ever finds out about that stuff. So that's what I'm doing. This has nothing to do with, with any creative shit that I normally do. For some reason, it just kind of struck home. Yeah, nice, nice. And he says FMQ on Facebook? Yep. Right on, as soon right as I on. get more more things going on out. For some reason, Instagram wouldn't make me or wouldn't let me put a stuff, put things on. And I, there's still a lot to do because uh, I've only gotten two submissions so far. It's been out for like a week. So I think that it's not quite easy enough for people to just, you know, I think I'm probably going to have to make like air fresheners with a QR code on there. So while they're <laughs> in their car, 
they could just scan it and put the just plug the information in or make an app or something. Since it's always drive-throughs and it's fast food, you know, make it uh, a, a keychain that they can scan the QR code from. There you, there go. you go. An FMQ Perfect. fucking themed uh, keychain. There's got to be somebody out there like Vista Print that makes that kind of shit. Yep. Well, yep. Check out Corey's new endeavor, FMQ. Check us out here at Cinema Degeneration. And if you like what we're doing, drop us a like, drop us a subscribe, share, go on Podbean, like the account, drop us a, a message, let us know what you want us to review next. And so just click, like, link, subscribe, all that good stuff, wherever you can find us on, wherever fine podcasts are sold. Once again, thank you folks for listening. As long as you keep listening, we'll keep doing them. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Can't you just answer my simple question? I asked you a question, where the fuck is Laura? Yeah, that's what I've been asking you the last 10 minutes. Sit down, make yourself comfortable. You idiot, you're gonna shoot in two days? Man, you're spending my money, yeah. Yeah, you better do that. Fucking asshole. It's an honor to meet you. Thank you for seeing us.